the Fromer Travel Show. I'm your host, Pauline Fromer, and today I I feel like we should be singing California, here I come, because we are going to be concentrating on that marvelous state today and all of the travel opportunities there. Our second guest will be discussing a gold rush town with a really unusual past. Our first guest, though, is going to cover the whole dang state. His name is Christopher Reynolds. He works for the LA Times. He spends much of his life writing about California. Welcome back, Chris. Nice to speak with you. Great to speak with you, Pauline. And I'm very glad that it's you singing California, Here We Come, and not me. (laughs) I think your listeners will be grateful, too. So recently, you wrote a piece in which you laid out 40 different ways to enjoy California in fall. That's a heck of a lot. Why did you come up with the number 40? Is there some magic behind that? Uh, The only magic, I suppose, is that I grew up hearing top 40 radio songs. And, uh, And so top 40 kind of clung together in my brain, I suppose. Also, when I was coming up with a list, 10 or 20 just didn't seem enough, given the size of the state. So yeah. we actually did this the first time in the summer uh, when we were at a different phase of the pandemic and we made every location an outdoor location. The original idea with the fall top 40 was that we would focus a lot more on indoors locations since it's also usually the beginning of the performing arts and museum seasons. But then, of course, the pandemic took another turn and people aren't <laughs> as eager to go indoors as right. we thought. So we so we ended up with a fall list that combines indoors and outdoors. And since in California, we've got, you know, the summertime is not a great time to visit the desert. Uh, fall is a chance to start looking more closely at desert locations that wouldn't make sense in summer. Did you have to double any of the ones that you used in summer? No, I made myself find new places in every case. And fortunately, it's a big state. It's a big state. And it's also much of it is a warm weather state. And so you have a beach on it, Bombay Beach. Tell us why you chose that for fall. Well, we put that photograph on the cover of the section because it's so unexpected. It's this desolate, uh, empty landscape and still water with a lonely swing set reflected in the middle. It looks sort of post-apocalyptic. In fact, the <laughs> Gee, whole... Gee, that's appealing. <laughs> well, it, it's different. Uh-huh. Um, it, it's, uh, Bombay Beach is an odd little community on the Salton Sea, which is in the desert near um, Joshua Tree National Park. Salton Sea was created, as many Southern Californians know, by a mistake in water engineering about 100 years ago when um, a whole bunch of water ended up in a place where it wasn't supposed to be. And I'm talking about a whole bunch of water. This this sea is larger than Lake Tahoe, not as deep, wow. but larger. Unfortunately, over the years, it's gotten more and more saline and it's gotten some runoff from near, nearby farms. And the result is that nobody's exactly sure what to do about this large body of water. But in the meantime, it's been a great place for nesting birds. And it ne- lately has become a place where artists put together strange projects. And you put a strange sculpture or other project next to that vast amount of still water. And it has a fascinating effect. It's a little bit Burning Man. It's a little bit Mad Max. It's yeah, it's striking. So it's if this is a place both for art lovers and bird watchers. 
Exactly right. And it's a day trip from Palm Springs or Joshua Tree National Park where you can have more conventional uh, satisfactions, whether it's rock climbing or dining out uh, in, in Palm Springs. Well, being the LA Times, you also obviously picked some places in Los Angeles, as you should, one of which was Grand Avenue. Why Grand Avenue? Grand Avenue is shaping up as the sort of main street of uh, of the arts in Los Angeles. It's where Disney Hall is. So uh-huh. Uh, so there is that. It's it's also where the Broad Museum is, just across the street from Disney Hall, and also uh, the Museum of Contemporary Art. And Grand Park uh, is there as well, which is a 12-acre green space. It's no central park, but it's a very nice little central patch of green in downtown Los Angeles. And increasingly, it's getting to be a place where Angelinos mark uh, New Year's Eve or Dia de los Muertos, which we have coming up. But with just a few blocks of walking around on Grand Avenue and dipping into buildings, you get a real sense of the cultural scene in Los Angeles, which continues strong. Yeah, absolutely. I I was at the Broad, I guess, right after it opened. And it's a marvel. I mean, it's this extraordinary contemporary art museum where every current star, it seems, has has is represented and usually in a very dramatic uh, way. Uh, it's, and, it's, exactly. And it's a striking piece of architecture in its own right. It's almost like a sculptural piece itself. Um, the other thing I should mention about Grand Avenue is that along the edge of Grand Avenue and Grand Park, there's a new commercial mixed-use development going up that's going to have a fancy hotel in it and some high towers. And uh, interestingly, the, the architect who designed Disney Hall, Frank Geary, is the same guy who has designed this new project. So you'll be able to um, bed down in a Frank Geary building and gaze upon another Frank Geary building. Wow. I, I know that uh, Frank Geary has a couple of buildings in New York City, none of which are mu- are hotels. Has he done many hotels? Do you know? I do not think he has. I'm not yeah. sure why that would be. You would expect there, yeah, he'd have a bunch to his credit by now, but I don't think he has done many. Anyway, this yeah. one's supposed to open in 2022. We'll see. Okay, interesting. So you can see it going up right now, which probably, you know, he's such a, a masterful architect. I'm sure that's interesting to see as well. If I were still in my newspaper's old offices downtown, I would see it going up. Huh. <laughs> Instead, I'm working at home about 10 uh, miles away. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so also in L.A., Hollywood Boulevard. I'm assuming that was chosen for a different reason than Grand Avenue. It was. And part of it is to kind of come to grips with an awkward reality about Southern California and a lot of big cities these days, which is that there is there is homelessness and there is a fair amount of desperation. And for all the years I've lived in Los Angeles, which is about 30 now, I have just seen this endless stream of visitors from other states arrive and stand at the corner of Hollywood and Vine and think, this is it? Hmm, Yeah. Um, that that does happen a lot. And, you know, Man's Chinese Theater, no longer Man's, the, the Chinese Theater is there. The Walk of Fame is there. There are lots of great places, but people who don't get briefed properly arrive and find themselves a bit dismayed. So I wanted to set out some simple guidelines for folks who d- didn't know their way around on Hollywood Boulevard. And one is if you're taking kids 
go to the El Capitan Theater. It's where Disney does a lot of their premieres. It's this gorgeous old theater from the 1920s. And a guy comes out and plays the Wurlitzer organ beforehand. Mm. And and that that's a, a great afternoon yeah. and evening with kids. You go a little bit to the east if you're having an adult evening, and you can catch a show at the Pantages. You can have dinner at Musso and Frank, which seems to have a scene in in every L.A. noir movie that's ever been made. Um, it's a great. It's been been there more yeah. than a hundred years. Classic. Uh, a, yeah. So that's that's a great spot as well. And actually, if you're if you're into Hollywood history, there's a tiny little bookshop across the street from uh, from the Pantages Theater and. Uh, that can give you all sorts of cinematic and stage um, old posters and, and old books and things. Larry Edmonds Bookshop. Ah, also in L.A., you chose the beautiful Union Station. Is is something new there, or or did you just want people to enjoy the history? What was the reason for the choice? Mostly, I wanted people to enjoy the history. Um, it is true that the Union Station changed ownership a few years ago, and since then, there's been a steady increase in the amount of sort of cultural programming that happens there. Also, the last Academy Awards happened there. Yeah. Also, the, yeah, the last <laughs> Academy Awards were there, which was which it was, was a, a weird thing. Academy Awards. I gotta say, I, exactly. I thought it was a terrible ceremony, but that's just me. It was a love it or hate it kind of thing. I loved the location yeah. and the ceremony. I wasn't so sure about, but yeah. the building went up in 1939, and it's a very rare case of melding. Spanish revival architecture with Art Deco architecture. And so you get these two different eras and ideas kind of mingling with each other. Uh, and it's kind of the last of the great old train stations. I don't think anybody built a great train station after that one, which went up in 39. Yeah, yeah, no, it's a beaut. All right, let's go to the weirder side of California, the Integraton. <laughs> what is that? The Integratron um, is out in the desert near Joshua Tree again. It's um, it looks like a, a God misplaced a golf ball. It's it's about <laughs> fifty feet around, and it's a it's a perfect bright white dome. And it was built by a guy in the nineteen fifties who was hoping to communicate with Venus, as one does. Um, he worked for Howard Hughes, so there you go. Ah, um, okay. He, he hasn't reached Venus yet. He's gone now. There are new owners. But it turns out that by building that dome out of Douglas fir, he constructed a space that's amazingly resonant on the inside. And musicians huh. started going there to record and rehearse. And gradually, people realized that if you, if you, you know, played uh, crystal, you know, played played a crystal bowl with a mallet, you could get this amazing sound. Uh, in the story, I said it sort of sounds like, um, like. Planet Earth's dial tone. It's uh, wow. a fascinating space. And now they they sell out sound baths and people come and, and lie down as if they're going to do yoga and just listen to these amazing sounds for 45 minutes and then huh. buy, buy T-shirts and snow globes and, you know, do all the things that tourists do. But right. it's a fascinating space. And it's an interesting indoor thing to do in the desert where you're spending the rest of your time outdoors. That sounds marvelous. I want to go. One okay. other place that you've had on your list where I have been, the Madonna Inn, from weird to kitschy. Tell exactly. about the Madonna. Okay. The Madonna Inn uh, is actually named for the family that built it. Alex Madonna was the guy who, who built it uh, back in the 50s. 
he was in construction, and I think he had to do with building some of the roads that led people to Hearst Castle, which is said to have helped given him the idea to build a, a one-off sort of crazy palatial roadside inn for people who might be going in the direction of Hearst Castle. So in San Luis Obispo County, not too far from Hearst Castle, he built the Madonna Inn, which has about 110 rooms, no two of them alike, crazy fountains, round beds, curving walls. It's really kooky with a capital K. Well, and every room has a different theme. So, every room, you know. Yes. And in fact, there's a postcard for every room, for every theme. <laughs> and uh, crazily enough, you know, for years, it didn't have a swimming pool, but now it does. And it's got tennis courts, which are pink, of course, because the other thing in the Madonna family is that um, is that Alex Madonna's widow was in love with, is in love with the color pink. And so huh. any anything that can be painted pink pretty much is on the property. So it's a it's a fascinating place, and it happens to be almost precisely between Los Angeles and San Francisco. So yes. if you got to do an overnight on the way, it actually has a, a practical appeal in that regard. And it's got this over the top steakhouse that looks like a bordello uh, to my mind. I mean, a exactly lot of pink right. in the steakhouse and a big bar where you can sit and dig into juicy meat and have a classic cocktail. It's it's a lot of fun. It's, it's it really is. a great place. There's, there are people who come just to have a look at the restrooms uh, off the lobby because the fountain affects uh, within. Yeah, it's, it's a striking place. And you would think that uh, as the years pass, that uh, the falling out of fashion of the thing would undercut it somehow. But when you start at such a position of profound kitsch, it's like the <laughs> passing of time just takes you deeper there. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, our next guest is going to talk about the Chinese history of uh the gold rush. Uh, her name is Nina Ichikawa. She'll be up next. But you, in your piece, dealt with some of the Japanese history of California, uh, the, the tragic history uh, that took place during World War II. Tell, tell a little bit about what you chose for that. Well, absolutely. That would be Manzanar National Historic Site, which is uh, along the um, floor of the on the eastern Sierra. Um, it's sort of in the middle of nowhere, which is why it was chosen during World War II when federal authorities decided to forcibly relocate more than 10,000 Japanese Americans uh, after the war began. That's where they ended up living in barracks for a period of many years. And it's now been converted into a historic site where they have left a couple of the barracks and uh, the open area. And you can walk around and you can see the way those families lived and learn a bit about how that how that came to happen and how the U.S. government went about rethinking what it had done. And there's a video yeah. clip that you can see there about pre- pre- then President Reagan in the 1980s apologizing and um, and announcing the payment of reparations to families who were interned is the word they used at the time. Yeah. I think. But years ago, I saw George Takai, uh, who was on Star Trek. Mm-hmm. Uh, his family was interned. Uh, during World War II. And his father lost his business, they lost their home. And he did, believe it or not, a Broadway musical about that. He, he wrote it. And it was, it was, it was flawed. But uh, there was a lot of very poignant 
uh, an important history that it, it told. Uh, you know, it wasn't a perfect show. I don't think it's going to go that far, but it, uh, it really brought home how people's lives were just turned upside down. And many of the folks who were interned never got back to where they were before the internment. I mean, it, it really was a, a deep tragedy. Exactly right. And Manzanar is not the only one of those camps that there were. There were several. There might have even been 10 around, mostly around the American West. And uh, so a lot of Japanese American families that have been here for a while have stories about what they did to to get through that time, because a lot of them lost everything they had when they were relocated. Yeah. 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 I know that that's the thing when you spend any time looking at California history. Uh, there are all these different facets of it. I mean, one other place I'll sure. mention is um, Angel Island, which is right next to Alcatraz. Everybody visits Alcatraz. Very few people visit Angel Island. But Angel Island is the West Coast's version of Ellis Island. The difference being that when Chinese visitors arrived at Angel Island to be processed and enter the country, U.S. officials weren't especially happy to see them. And instead mm-hmm. of instead of running them through in a in a few minutes or a few hours, as was happening for the European immigrants at Ellis Island, at Angel Island, the Chinese immigrants often spent weeks or months waiting. And if you go there now, there is a state park there and you can actually see the characters of Chinese poetry that some of the immigrants marked in the walls while they were waiting for their chance to get into this country. I, I never knew that. I, I want to go the next time I'm in San Francisco. One of the things I love that you did with this article is you not only put the article out into the world, you then wrote a companion piece about the badgering you got about, from all your readers about all the things you missed. Uh, were there a couple of them that you thought, oh, my goodness, I'm an idiot. Why didn't I put it in? I suppose there were a few I felt that way about. Some of, some of them were very summer-oriented places, like right. somebody was unhappy that Huntington Beach hadn't been mentioned. And I did mention a bunch of beaches when I did a top 40 outdoors location list for the for the summer. Um, sure. For the fall, though, it's tough. Like I, I mentioned Badwater, which is the lowest point in Death Valley, actually the lowest point in the continental United States. And mm-hmm. I, I failed to mention Dante's View, which is basically the mountaintop that looks down upon uh, Badwater. And as this reader pointed out, it certainly makes sense to do both if you're going to do one. And I can't right, argue with right. that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, it's been such a delight speaking with you. Thank you so much, Chris, for appearing here on the Frommer Travel Show. Thank you so much, Pauline. It was a pleasure. The gold rush is a major part of California history, but not all stories are getting told, which is why I was so excited to read the article our next guest wrote in the New York Times. The article was called Looking for a Gold Rush Town Named Chinese Camp. The author is here. Her name is Nina Ichikawa. Welcome to the Fromer Travel Show, Nina. Thank you so much. 
So you start your article by talking about you're in a stagecoach getting all held up and your children are squealing. Uh, <laughs> that's the classic, you know, kind of hokey but fun introduction a lot of us get to gold rush history when we go to the foothills of the Sierra Nevada mountains in California. Yeah. But you wanted to, to take another approach. What what was your inspiration and, and what were you looking for? Sure. Thank you so much for having me. Well, a few years ago, I did get interested in this area called cultural and heritage travel, um, where people seek out historical and family experiences through their travel. I wrote a piece in 2015 for NBC Asian America about Asian, the rise of Asian American heritage travel. And recently, a friend had reached out to me um, for asking for an itinerary for him to do a road trip over the summer. And I, I just got started thinking about it. So when we were planning to do just an, a sort of a low-key, COVID-safe summer trip with a few friends and kids, and I heard that we would be in Gold Rush County, I just pulled up gold, um, Google Maps and started looking, and I saw this dot called Chinese Camp. And, you oh. know, living in California, we pass by these road markers all the time, and we don't always – I usually don't stop, but I thought this would be an opportunity to um, dig a little deeper. So, oh, that's so interesting. So you found the name Chinese Camp just on a map and you assumed there would be an interesting story there. Well, your instincts were right. Uh, can you tell a little bit about the history of Chinese Camp? Sure. Well, Chinese Camp was one of many multicultural mining villages or towns that emerged in the wild days of you know, 18. 49, 50, 51, 52, when really people from all around the world were rushing to California to pick gold out of the rivers. You know, and what I really found is that in the beginning, it was a really international community. But unfortunately, due to racism, uh, many immigrant communities, um, little by little, were sort of kicked off the land and also kicked out of the story of uh, what did the gold rush mean? How did that happen? Who, who was doing the kicking? <laughs> uh, largely white miners, um, some of whom came from the South and had been involved in in um, slave owning and um, were actually leaving the South because there was, you know, uh, increasing crackdowns on slave owning in the South. And so some people actually wanted to ha see if there was a, you know, a new place for wealth out West. That that was definitely um, part of it. I mean, there, there are all kinds of reasons why people get attracted to xenophobia. But I think in, in this case, it was also a chance to get more wealth for themselves because, sure. um, you know, what I, what interesting thing I read is that when some of the Chinese miners came, they were skillful at it. They figured out how the mining claims process worked. You can get a lawyer and go down to the county office and say you have a mining claim. And some of them start to set up corporations and grow quite large. They were successful. And, um, this threatened some people ideas, some people's ideas of what this new land called California should be. Yeah. Yeah. No, I thought it was fascinating because I've I've heard obviously of of the Chinese coming to the United States, yeah. getting jobs, building the railways and mm -hmm. building the bridges and they really built the infrastructure of the American West. Yeah. Uh 
but I didn't know that there were Chinese adventurers of this sort who wanted to strike it rich, just like the rest of the world did. Exactly. Uh, and, and there's a reason they called it Gold Mountain. You know, the, it was called Gold Mountain was America, a place where a fabled place where you can just pick gold up off the streets, you know, and this is the American dream that some people still believe in and <laughs> that it's right. sort of ripe for the picking. Exactly. So why was it called Chinese camp? I think it was given that name by non-Chinese. What happened was, you know, as I said, there were many multicultural mining towns with um, people from Mexico, from other parts of Latin America, like Chile. There were folks, of course, who came from Europe, the American South, African-Americans, both free and enslaved. So it was a a big mix of people. But as it became more racialized, meaning, you know, divisions were set up according to race, Chinese were driven away from other towns into this area called Chinese camp. So this sort of a segregation was put in place. And, you know, there's also a place on the on the coast of California near Bodega Bay called China Camp that's more well known. And that was a shrimping village. So it's sort of you could call it like a a ghetto or a, an, an isolated yeah. place where the Chinese were told to be. And it's kind of amazing that this name has endured. You know, if we, some people think the name is weird, but I'm grateful that it helps us see the history. Yeah. And they, they were not only ghettoized in terms of where they were living, they were not allowed to mine for gold. They exactly. had to become the support personnel for those who were and even that makes it sound too highfalutin. They, mm-hmm. they they had to wash the dishes and do the grunt work. Exactly, of- laundering. And and even at that, as I said in my article, they were too successful. And that is why um, mm-hmm. we passed the Chinese Exclusion Act in 1882. That wasn't because there were no Chinese, you know, coming. That was because there were so-called too many Chinese coming and, and they were successful and um, people felt that they were economic competition. Yeah. And the Chinese Exclusion Act, for any of our listeners who don't know it about it, 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 it's the only act that was ever passed by the American Congress to keep out one group of people. Mm-hmm. And it stranded uh, thousands of Chinese men who had come to the U.S. in the hope of then bringing over their families. A lot of them got stranded here and had to lead bachelor lives. So when you visit there, what do you see? I mean, what were some of the adventures you had? Yeah, well, you know, as I said in my article, we visited a nearby town called Columbia. It's The town is called Columbia, and there's a state park called Columbia State Historic Park that's really a remarkably preserved main street from the Gold Rush era. And it has these actors in period costumes and all kinds of activities for kids. It's a lot of fun. I mean, I really recommend people visit, but I had a nagging feeling that all of the stories are not being told. And Hmm. of course, you know, this, you know, being a city person being ambushed by a a pretend gun was a little bit, you know, we were sort of not prepared for that. But, you know, when I visited Chinese camp just a few miles away, I was struck by how little effort has been put into telling that story. There's almost nothing there. Um, it's really fallen into disrepair and there's a, there is a sort of a corner store there, but there's very little. So I, I had to use my imagination and I went home and started reading books and digging around, but I just couldn't help thinking that um, visitors and Californians alike are not getting to feel and experience what the gold rush uh, really was Yeah, as, as far as the way we've, we've preserved the history. So that's what I started looking at. 
You did speak to some rangers who are, I think, expressed a yeah. willingness to tell a more rounded, complete story, right? Absolutely. There's a wonderful ranger uh, for the National Park Service at uh, Yosemite, which is not that far away. And actually, Chinese camp is right on the way to Yosemite, and it's a, tr- it's a perfect location. Um, and a lot of people commented after my story that, oh, I've driven by Chinese camp and I never knew what it was. But hmm. Yan Yan Chan is a uh, ranger who's been leading stories and leading tours of the Chinese contribution to Yosemite for many years. And these are um, this more happened later, you know, after the gold rush and in the early part of the 20th century, when the idea of conservation and national parks emerged. And, and she's done an amazing job of, of bringing visitors into that story. And I've actually just learned that a, a Chinese laundry within Yosemite has just been restored and open to the public. Oh. Um, and so that's, I didn't write about in my story, but that's hot off the presses and very exciting. So, I mean, she's, she's been doing that single-handedly, but wow. you know, as a Californian, I felt, wow, we as a state need to catch up and do a better job telling the story. Yeah. <laughs> you really shone a light on a, a dark piece of the past. Uh, I hope everybody gets a chance to read it. Once again, it's in the New York Times. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much, Nina, for appearing on the Firmer Travel Show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. And I welcome everyone to uh, visit these places and um, see what else they can find because it can actually be remarkably fun, even if it seems like a, you know, troublesome history can have a lot of fun digging into it. So thank you so much for having me. that's it for this week's show. As always, I am grateful that you are here and that you are listening. As always, I want to encourage you to visit us at fromers.com because we have some very interesting articles up right now. One about the dastardly change to the contract of carriage by American Airlines. I think you'll be pretty shocked by what they've put into writing and the way they have decided to not help passengers when things go wrong. It's a shocker. It really is. Uh, We also have an article up, two articles, about what you can do to save money on holiday travel, airfares, lodgings, and car rentals. In certain ways, it's going to be tough this year. Definitely tougher than last year when nobody was traveling and nobody should have been traveling. Please visit us. And uh, to those who are traveling, may I wish you a hearty bon voyage. Watching K-